Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Ken Stern is a former CEO of NPR and a self-described lifelong Democrat. At least he was. After he spent a year studying the political right, he changed his thinking about his ties to the political left. The result is his new book, How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. He's in town for an event tonight that we'll tell you about a little bit later, and he joins me in studio. Ken, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me on the show, Don. Quite, quite a journey that you took for yourself there, Ken. What motivated you to make that trip around the country? So I, I think it started with a, um, a view that I think a lot of people share, which is uh, increasing concern about how polarized we are, how angry we are at the other side. <clears throat> and, um, um, you know, as, as I started looking at the – as I started digging into the question of political polarization, I realized that, realized that a lot of our anger is artificial. We don't actually disagree any more than we used to. Um, uh, but we're a lot angry at each other. And that has, that has a, a lot to do with how we're organized. We know people on our side. We listen to our own media. Um, and I wanted to tell that story and get out and meet people. Um, I wanted to leave my 94 percent Democratic district um, uh, and go out and meet people who I wouldn't ordinar- ordinarily meet. That, that's the bubble you talk about, just being with those people with whom you're most comfortable. That's right. Yeah. You have a line in the book uh, early on in which you say that uh, the results of surveys show this. Partisan bias outstrips race, religion, and class. That's astounding. It, it is astounding. And, and, um, and it's threaded through, um, you know, in the book, um, as I wrote the book, Republican Like Me, um, it, 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 there's tons of social science that really shows that in sort of astonishing ways. It almost seems impossible. But as you dig into the data, um, it, it really clear that um, – uh, um, we don't um, – uh, we're allowed to feel anger and, and hostility to the other side in ways that sort of social norms are different for race and religion. Um, there's actually a question that's been pulled on for, for the last 50 years. Um, would you want your son or daughter marrying someone from the other mm-hmm. party? And when that was actually first asked 50 years ago, everyone said, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I mean virtually no one objected. But now well more than more than 50 percent of both uh, uh, conservatives and liberals don't want their don't want intermarriage, mm-hmm. uh, and the intermarriage is defined as, as cross parties. Is that being exacerbated today? Do you think, uh, given the rhetoric, of the political rhetoric of this day? Oh yeah. So when I started writing this book, um, probably started conceiving about three years ago, um, all before Trump, uh, all before the mm-hmm. the heated anger of the day. It almost seems quaint in in comparison. I mean, with with the president. Um, who I think is a unique character and a uniquely angry and divisive one, um, with social media becoming so much a part of the dialogue. Yeah, I think this is a time that is unlike any others. Are you going to vote for him if he runs again? I didn't vote for him the first time, and I <laughs> well, you, that was <laughs> that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, no. Um, so, it, so it's interesting. I mean, I'm. You know, the things I learned um, – when I say I learned to love the right, I, I didn't learn to agree with everything uh, I heard. I, but I learned to sort of listen and appreciate and have a, have a sense of good faith um, with the other side. The president, I think, is the exact yeah. opposite. He lives in his own bubble, a sort of uh, odd bubble, and he, and he wins by dividing. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem with the country right now. The sense I got from the book – and I've only read part of it because I just got it yesterday, and, uh, but I certainly will finish it. The sense I got was that uh, the people on the right are one thing and the politicians on the right are another. I think that's right. So, uh, so we have uh, – I think we have a very clear – I think the, the public rhetoric is actually defined by relatively small groups of people, mm-hmm. um, the politicians, the media, um, both conservative and liberal media, and um, by the loudest voices on Twitter. 
And that's really mm-hmm. not the, the – that's not the country. I mean the vast majority of people don't spend their days watching cable TV. They don't spend their days on Twitter. They don't spend their days thinking about politics and mostly focus on their community. It's, it's a little bit of cliche to talk about the silent majority. But that's who, you, who I met out there, people who had their own concerns, um, mostly were alienated from the political process and uh, I think sort of repulsed by what was going on um, both in, you know, in the public conversation and mm-hmm. politics. How did we get here? How did we get to this point? I mean, well, the, the point at which the polarization really began to take hold. Yeah. So you can actually track it. Um, I think there are a lot of different things that are going on. And sort of this – you can't really blame one thing. Um, certainly the rise of political media and that started with conservative media. Rush Limbaugh I think has a big um, historical role sure. in the rise of polarization. But the, the, the thing we don't actually talk about as much is what um, – what the political science called the big sort, and that is where we've actually now choosing our neighborhoods based upon um, the the neighborhoods that are politically compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're actually segregating ourselves along political lines, um, and you can see that actually in in the voting. Uh, um, uh, Twenty years ago, there were about I think about a thousand what they call landslide counties, counties that one party or another won by more than twenty twenty percent. This time around, there are about twenty five hundred. Um, we're just sorting ourselves and choosing to live in places that are politically compatible. And when you live with people who agree with you, when you watch media that agrees with you, uh, it becomes really easy to think you're right and the other side is just wrong. There's that bubble again. That's exactly That's right. That's right. Where did you go? What, to tell me some of the places that you went. I know St. Louis was one of your stops. Urbana, Illinois was another. Yeah. Uh, let, let's start with St. Louis. What did you learn here or what changed your mind about your political philosophy in St. Louis? So it's actually not a sort of an obvious thing. When you say you want to sort of travel with Republicans, not like an obvious thing yeah. you, you, to, to go. Um, there uh, there may be sort of Republican land, but it's, it's not obvious who you should talk to and what you should do. Uh, so I did sort of a selection of things. Um, uh, uh, and one of the things you have to do if you really want to understand the right is you have to understand evangelicalism. Um, evangelicals, the biggest religious group in the country, vote 80 percent for Republicans every time around. Um, and I was invited by um, a, a professor actually here at Washington University named John Nazu uh, mm-hmm. to come to uh, an event called Urbana. And that's a triennial gathering of about 15,000 evangelical youths. Um, and it was really, you know, it was sort of a list of things I didn't think I would ever do. I mean, I'm sort of an agnostic middle-aged Jew from Washington, D.C. What am I doing with 15,000 um, uh, evangelical youths? And I came thinking that I would talk to them about abortion and gay issues. Um, that was my agenda. They wanted to talk about um, the things they were thinking about, which was Black Lives Matter and refugee issues, uh, which is how to help them, not how to keep them out. Um, they all probably voted – many of them probably voted Republican. That was sort of my narrative. But they all had views about um, – they wanted to change the world in really sort of impressive ways. Mm-hmm. And that was an early lesson um, that the – the people on the right weren't the people I thought they would be. Mm-hmm. I, I want to invite listeners uh, into this conversation. I'm sure many will want to be a part of it. And uh, 3828255 is our number. I say that because we already have a call and it's <laughs> relevant to what we've just, just been talking about. Yeah. So let's bring in Pianke calling from St. Louis. Go ahead. You're on the air. And I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Yeah, you do a very good job of the times I've called. You know, I've listened to the conversation in many. I'm an African-American. And I supported and voted for Donald Trump because of the issues. And you wouldn't believe the type of ridicule and names that I'm called when I reveal that to black voters, especially to African-Americans. And it's really 
disservice to me because we are never asked our opinion of the present administration of why we voted for uh, Donald Trump. We, I'm asked why did I, but not why. And I think that's wrong. I never have been interviewed. I never have a microphone. I never ask my opinion because I'm black and I voted for the present president. So I wonder what his opinion is on that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, so it's um, it's uh, it's a really interesting call, and and, it, and there is someone who is sort of um, uh, um, perhaps stepped outside his bubble uh, and voted ways that are unexpected mm-hmm. because, of course, blacks voted for Hillary Clinton um, probably close to ninety three percent to seven percent, um, and the fact that someone can be ridiculed or humiliated because of who they chose, I think, is a signal of, of, of our politics gone wrong. And, and I'll tell you that you see that I, I've experienced, I've heard this from a lot of people. Actually, some guy in Washington, D.C., I won't tell his name, uh, delivered to me a letter. He was a lawyer in Washington, D.C. Everyone he knows voted for Hillary Clinton, but he didn't. He voted for Donald Trump. And he wanted to talk to me because he couldn't, couldn't bear to tell his social circles or his mm-hmm people who worked with what he had done because he thought he would be outed for it. Um, and that's a, that's a little sobering thing. I mean, whether you agree with his vote or not, it's a sobering thing when that someone um, in this country feels uh, shame to talk about their political perspectives, especially if they have a thoughtful one. Do you, did you find a lot of people like that uh, in, in your travels? Yeah, I did. I mean, I think yeah. I found a lot of people who were willing to have confidential conversations with me, mm-hmm. uh, but felt very awkward um, in this heated political environment of uh, saying what they think to others. I, I even wrote about a friend of mine from law school um, uh, um, who lives in Texas, was from Texas. Um, uh, when he found out I was writing this, he, he was a um, close friend of, of mine, um, and he was always a little more on the conservative side of the mm-hmm. group at Yale Law School, uh, which, as you might, as you might expect, is sure. a fairly liberal uh, group. Um, but when he found out I was writing this book, it was interesting to hear his somewhat angry perspective 30 years later about mm-hmm. how he felt, uh, if not ridiculed, um, silence for being Southern, a little more conservative um, from a different community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at Yale Law School and other places, you honored diversity of one type, but there you were mm-hmm. um, dishonoring a different type of political diversity. Yeah. Well, let's take another call. Jerry and O'Fallon wants to get into the discussion. Jerry, go ahead. You're on the air. Time and again, I keep hearing that both sides are at fault. But if you recall, back in the 90s, it was Newt Gingrich who originated the strategy of not only um, disagreeing with your political opponents, but essentially demonizing them. And I will say the right has always been better at framing the, uh, you know, we we have, uh, it's not an inheritance tax, it's a death tax. And uh, I, I really believe, and if you believe Norm Ornstein from, uh, I can't think of the top of uh, the, uh, political think tank he's associated with, but it's a conservative leading one. And he has said time and again that this is, uh, you know, the left has essentially been on the defense uh, since the middle 1990s. And I, I do tend to tend to place the blame, if you will, uh, more on the uh, right to, on the attack going back 30 plus years now. Let's get a response, Jerry. Thank you. Yeah, I actually genuinely agree with that. I mean, I think there's enough blame to go around, but probably not in equal proportion. Um, I mentioned earlier, you know, I think the headwaters of uh, of some of our divisiveness comes from conservative media. Um, and uh, 
you know, I, I think the loss of faith in institutions often starts with a lot of attacks. But I don't think the the left is free from from blame. Um, I think a lot of our identity group politics and some of the anger that people feel, uh, some of the anger that the Trump voters felt, uh, comes from uh, the identity group politics of the left. Um, a lot of, you know, I think a lot of Trump's success um, originates with people who feel marginalized in, in the conversation, feel they're not doing well, um, they're doing poorly, the establishment's left them behind, the coasts have left them behind, um, and they're angry about it. And I think that has um, something to do with the politics of the left. We've all had, heard about the 35 percent that are rock-solid supporters for Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, what sort of support did you find out in the hinterlands for him, per se? Yeah, so you meet also – look, 62 million people voted for him. Sure. You're going to find 62 sure. million stories, including some of your callers. Um, uh, but the, it's interesting to me. I didn't actually find, you know, sort of slavish support for him. Um, I met some people who were sort of groupies. But most people, I think, um, were – saw him almost as a protest vote. Uh, the number of people yeah. who said to me, I'd vote for Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or – you know, Donald Trump will either be a great president or start World War III, which didn't strike me as a good bet. But, you know, for them it was. Uh, they felt – I mean, I think this is – you know, you talk about essentially a wh- white working class revolt, uh, a group that is down income and life expectancy, um, opioid addiction up, uh, hope for the future down. I think they – I don't know that they admire – there was a mix of admiration um, at Trump's chutzpah. Um, but also the sense that he was just different, and that was worth a gamble. I have to take a break, but did you, did you expect Donald Trump to win that election? You know, um, uh, it, it sort of depends on the day. When I was out talking to folks, yeah. I could see it. Yeah. Um, when I came home to my uh, comfortable uh, blue neighborhood, it seemed almost inconceivable. It's actually that type of duality that, I mean, I sort of bounced back and forth and saw different worlds. I, I want to pick up on that point when we come back. We have to take a break now. I'm talking with Ken Stern. He's the author of Republican Like Me. By the way, he's going to be appearing tonight for a discussion, Religion and Politics in an Age of Fracture, at 7 o'clock at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University. So uh, there is going to be that happening tonight. But we'll continue our conversation momentarily. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back to our conversation with Ken Stern, the author of Republican Like Me. You know, you, uh, you talk about the, uh, the number of people who voted for uh, Donald Trump, and there was a surprise for so many. The media really missed the boat on that story, didn't they? Yeah, sure. The media lives its own, in its own bubble. I think that's one of the uh, lessons of all this and one of the things I write about in the book, which is the media is largely concentrated in its own echo chamber. Um, you know, the New York Times newsroom has a particular makeup and it's self-perpetuating. They hire people like them from the same places, from the same schools. Um, they're great reporters, but I think their sense of the world and what is important and what the stories are tell are shaped by their backgrounds, like all of us. Um, and I think that has consequences when, um, when they're trying to cover an election and when the public starts losing faith in them. I think one of the things I'm princ- deeply concerned about 
we'll probably talk about a little bit tonight at, at mm-hmm. Washington University, is the declining faith the public has in the mainstream media. You've taken some hits of, for some mm-hmm. other things that you've written from former colleagues at NPR. They I, seem to resent uh, your your feeling of groupthink, so, sort of yeah. what you've just described, and that they are in this bubble as well. Yeah, so uh, look, my book is about we're all in this bubble. Yeah. Um, you know, it's what Emma Roller um, describes as uh, the biggest bias we have is not conservative bias or liberal bias, but confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it actually worries me. So I, I did take some uh, hits from former colleagues in public mm-hmm. radio. Um, and that's worries me, not because I'm right and they're wrong. Um, you know, I could be overstating my critique about the bubble. Um, uh, um, but I still I, – so I admire the work of mainstream organizations like the New York Times. I'm from this world, Washington Post, NPR. They do great work. But I think they're su- uh, um, subject to the same biases that we all have and it takes a lot to get out of that. Um, and, and it worries me that some of the response to that has been defensive and actually a little bit personal because as you look at the numbers of the public's trust in mainstream media, it's going straight down. It was 50, you know, over 50 percent in the late 90s. It was 32 percent uh, in people – only 32 percent of people trusted the media in 2016 and about half the country thinks that the mainstream media makes up stories now, fake news. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not all in the media's control, but it should be a time for introspection and I think a little bit of change. You apparently did try to win some of these folks back when you pointed out, I believe I'm correct on this, that uh, p- people may have their own individual biases, but NPR goes above and beyond in trying to make sure that they give both sides of the story and are objective. I, I think that's true. So I, I, I was talking to Frank Sesno last night, former oh, sure. CNN reporter, oh, yeah. now uh, dean of the public media school at yeah. George Washington. Um, and I said, Frank, you know, Frank actually agrees with some of my critiques. Um, I said, but who do you think is doing it right? And he didn't miss a beat. And he said, I think NPR is doing it the best of all. Mm-hmm. Um, more voices um, and a little per- bit of perspective that, you know, the CNNs don't have the world, which is all about Trump every hour, hair on fire. Um, and that's that's uh, laudable and should be called out. And cable television, of course, just makes this problem worse because people go to their comfort zone. And are you watching MSNBC now or Fox News now that you've made this journey? I watch both. <laughs> and I read. Uh, I Most read, people don't. No, they don't. Yeah. Um, you know, and look, uh, um, people at CNN and MSNBC are under orders only to talk about Trump unless there is some breaking news. Because uh, that's the story that gets people angry, and it's the it's the it's the politics of anger, and it's the, you know it's the media of anger, and that's uh, pretty unhealthy. The man who runs CBS during the campaign says, "Cover Trump; he's golden. Oh, yeah. he's, he's, he makes a lot of money for us." The New York Times, uh, the failing New York Times, um, online subscriptions uh, went over a billion dollars annually, and a lot of that's driven by the public's fascination with Trump and the fact that you know the New York Times audience wants to hear the latest. Uh, outrage that Trump is, is 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 committing. The number of subscribers to the Times is just going straight up, right. no question. Back to the phones. Let's bring in Kelly calling from St. Louis. Kelly, thanks for waiting. You're on the air with Ken Stern. Uh, yes, I just wanted to uh, point out that the, the thought that the left uh, owns identity politics, or even that there is such a thing as identity politics, I think is disingenuous. I think the right has been pushing white identity politics for decades. And I think the mere fact that women and people of color have spoken up and said, we don't live in the same world as you do, and we have a right to advocate for our own equality and our own fair treatment, to dismiss that as some kind of crass political strategy called identity politics 
does a great disservice to all of us. Everybody should be treated fairly. And um, I'm not about to sit down and wait until white men are comfortable with me having a seat at the table and to dismiss me as being manipulated by identity politics is to dehumanize me and invalidate my point of view. So I really take issue with the idea that there's, you know, identity politics on the left, but there's a void of identity politics on the right. Kelly, it just thank goes you. back to the old, old adage that everything is political. It's just if it works for you, it's invisible to you. If it doesn't work for you, then you can see that you can see the bias. Kelly, thank you for the call. Let's get a response. Yeah, so I think that's a, I mean, that's an interesting part of the debate, um, uh, and I think reflects how people have have different views on it, and uh, and also can I think take things um, and um, in directions that uh, the speaker didn't intend because I don't think this is a, I wouldn't call identity politics crass um, or or politi- or necessarily political, but it is a way of viewing the world. Um, uh, um, uh, it's a notion that. You see the lens through whether you're a woman or black and what you see, I think, um, and it's a troubling development, I think, is you think a lot of people are now beginning to see, I think, largely in reaction, uh, but not exclusively in reaction, um, are, trying to, are seeing the world through um, seeing themselves as white Americans. And I think that's a trend that I think is, uh, explains a lot of the behaviors in 2016 and it's going to get increasingly um, – uh, aggravated going forward. Um, we're, we're, we're less sort of a supergroup, as some of the political scientists call Americans, and much more thinking about ourselves as something dash Americans. Um, and that's now white Americans, especially working class Americans, uh, working class white Americans, thinking of themselves as minorities, um, which they think they are, um, and acting that way, having a group identity around color and class. And that's, I think, explains a lot of the success of Donald Trump. You know, uh, there are a, a lot of people on the left, <clears throat> pardon me, who think that Republicans on the whole are less compassionate than they are. They look at the Republican stance on things like welfare, for instance, and, and the safety net. They say that uh, – and taxes – that uh, Republicans generally are not uh, on the right side of those issues. What did you find in your journey? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I live – I mean, we all have our, my bubble at uh, on Hobart Street um, is um, if you enter my house, my wife. Um, that's works that's your community, by the way, yes, for right. people who don't know yeah. Hobart Street. Um, what people don't know Hobart Street, they should all visit. Um, yeah. uh, my wife works um, uh, in public and affordable housing for a Democratic senator, so I hear a lot about that sort of compassion. But when you go out and you talk to folks, um, you know, uh, I think what you get is not lack of compassion. You get a sense of there are better ways um, than through government programs. Uh, a lot of people I met saw the church uh, as the center of the community. They, they cared about individual charity. I mean, there's actually a lot of data about sort of the individual charity of conservatives versus Republicans. I didn't find a lack of compassion or any different sense of compassion, but I felt I found very different views on the best way to ensure a compassionate society. Well, there are a lot of people in rural America who vote Republican who are the beneficiaries and recipients of a lot of the government programs. Yeah, well, look, there's a, um, <laughs> if you're going to look for um, rigorous logic, you should not spend a lot of time in politics. Um, you know, that's the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Um, uh, and of course there is. You know, the, and if you go into Kentucky, people love Kentucky care. Um, they didn't like Obamacare, even though they're the exact same, same things. Thing. I mean, there's a lot of uh, of 
of I would call flock behavior. Um, you know, people would love um, affirmative action if Donald Trump is for it, hated if Obama's for it. It shows up in the polls all the time. Yeah. Um, that's mostly because most of us aren't experts on the issues. Um, we get a lot of signals from the people around us. It doesn't mean we're acting in bad faith. It means you know, we look to others to show us uh, the directions we're supposed to go. Let's take another call. This time it's Monroe calling from St. Louis. Monroe, thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Thank you, Don, for taking my call. I was sitting here listening, and uh, my first comment um, was that when he made the comment that people would marry would, would marry faster with race than with their political party, that's absurd. <laughs> I listen to parents all the time telling their white daughters don't marry a black guy, even now. But I wanted to get into the identity politics more because what he's saying is race is political. It's there. There's no biological description of race. So race is political in and of itself. And black people were three-fifths of a person in the Constitution. And we can go on and on and on. We can talk about the opioid crisis. We can talk about uh, more than 350 black men are shot, unarmed black men are shot by police. But yet the shooter in Parkland uh, Dylan Roof and all those other people were brought in, and one was taken for a Happy Meal. So for him to sit here and say that, that identity politics depends on the person, black people have never had a choice in the politics other than the lesser of two evils. Monroe, let me stop you right there because time's getting away. We want to give Ken an opportunity to respond. I think we get the gist of what you're talking about. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think the the lesson I take away from that call and some of the other calls is, um, you know, the thing that I found out, um, I think what we've lost in this country is the assumption of good faith on the part of the other side. Um, I don't know how strong it always has been, but for the last 50 years, I think we assume that the other side also had good good intentions and good motives. And uh, I think we've lost that entirely. Um, and, and that worries me a lot. Um, I feel like I'm saying I'm worried a lot, um, mm-hmm. but I am because I think it's a it's a bedrock um, requirement of democracy that you feel like you don't have to agree with people. In fact, you know the the democracy is stronger with different views, but you have to sense that have, have to have some sense that you're in it together, or the the idea of a democratic process starts to crumble. Uh, and what I think I, you hear from your callers and you hear all the time. Um, from both sides, and this is you know this is uniform across the public spe- uh, across the political spectrum. Um, the other side is um, acting in bad faith, and there's no reason to talk to them. It's actually uh, I was actually on a conservative talk show whose um, uh, a slogan said four times an hour is <clears throat> "We're right, you're wrong. That's the end of the story." Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get very far if that's uh, if that's your approach to to politics. Well, how deeply dug in are are the the uh, the opposite ends of this spectrum. Do you see any sense, get any sense during your, your travels that there's going to be a movement at some point toward the center where compromise lives? So, so it's interesting because I think the, the, the polls are actually quite dug in. Um, but there is this sensible center. I mean, you actually dig into the politics of sort of the, 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 the public's views on things like, I mean, uh, very divisive issues like gun control and abortion. They're actually fair amounts of agreement there. 
Um, but you don't get that from the broader public conversation. One of the biggest trends, and I've written about this for Vanity Fair where I write, um, over the last 20 years is actually how people abandoned the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. The biggest political group in this country by far now, and it's different than it was, are independents. And I think it's because people in the center or, um, or just embarrassed by our politics uh, want something different. So I think there is hope out there if that group is, is motivated and mobilized in some way. We're hearing an awful lot these days about young people, millennials, and, and, and even younger than that, uh, having an influence and making their voices heard. Qu- quickly, what's your, what's your take on that? I don't know. I mean, I, um, I, I feel like the, the young people can't screw things up worse than we've screwed up. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's, there's got to be hope. Um, but I do see in that group, if you dig into the polling data, you see a lack of faith, less faith in democracy. You see less faith in the, um, um, uh, uh, the power of dialogue. And it worries me that a generation growing up on social media and certainly living inside sort of an extraordinary echo chamber um, may have a different perspective than, um, than you know, people, I think, committed to building bridges. How has the Internet changed all of this? Yeah, it's changed it all. I mean, I, I write in the book, if, it wasn't, if I wasn't hooked on Wikipedia and Uber, I would throw my phone out right now. Um, mm. I think the social media, um, the anger of social media, and the division of, uh, of everyone can find their own media that agrees with them, um, I think is uh, uh, driven a lot of what's happened in this, in this country. Again, uh, in, in a second or two, will you vote differently, do you think, as a result of this experience than they have all of your life? Very quickly. So, so um, I started as a Democrat. For the purpose of the book, I re-registered as a Republican. When I came back, I registered as an independent. And I think of myself that now, even having been a lifelong Democrat. Thanks to Ken Stern. Great talking to you. He's the author of How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. He's appearing tonight at 7 o'clock at the uh, Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University. Again, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.